um, with this with this idea of being a leader because you just don't see yourself that way. But if you have influence over anyone or anything, whether you're a parent or if you're on the welcome team or AV team or setup team, I think that counts as leadership. Dr. Henry Cloud, a popular author and psychologist, defines leadership as the possession of power in the service of others or something larger than yourself. When we define leadership through this lens, it's not about needing to fit a certain mold that's been set in our minds through experience or what we've seen. It's about what comes from within, the way God designed each of us uniquely and how we interact with people around us and or a larger vision. This morning, I'm going to list five leadership principles that have helped me personally in my own growth and development as a leader. First, I want to introduce to you this major perspective principle. Here we go. To begin with the end in mind. This idea came from a class I took at Fuller Seminary called Lifelong Development by Dr. Bobby Clinton. In his research and study of numerous well-known leaders, he saw a common theme. Good leadership starts with having an end in mind. In other words, what will be your ultimate contribution when you leave this world? Now, some of us might want to avoid thinking about that final phase. But just like good financial planning, we want to be set up well. We don't want to look back on our past several decades with regrets. Similarly, we want to consider our spiritual contribution, our legacy in our final season of life. But spiritual legacy doesn't happen overnight. God's created each one of us with unique gifts and talents for us to be fruitful. And it takes years and decades to develop those gifts and talents, put them into practice, see its fruit, all while God refines our character as we sort out what it looks like to live out of our true and best self. This takes planned, good planning, and disciplined stewardship. Many of us have lived life long enough to know that plans don't always pan out. Things happen. Life happens. But at least we can look back and say, I did the best that I could with what I knew, and that's good enough. One of the major truths that we at Access teach our preschoolers is that God made you. That's a simple truth that a child who's in the ages of three to five, it's a simple truth that they can grasp. When I was at Mid-South Camp a couple weeks ago, I had the honor of sharing with some middle school girls my call to ministry. And one of the main things I shared was that all of us are called to serve. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. 
We are to serve him in some capacity where it will be a focus in our lives. And it may or may not be vocational ministry. Sometimes that focus aligns with our job. The focus can also change with each season. But hear this. The most important thing is that this ministry is crucial for you. More important than whatever job used to provide your finances. Good leadership begins with the end in mind. How will you steward the gifts and talents that God gives you? And what will be your ultimate contribution when you leave this world? Our second leadership principle comes from the book of Judges. Anyone want to guess who it's going to be about? Yeah. I like this picture of Deborah. It's pretty cool. Okay, Deborah. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Here God had appointed Deborah, the only female judge mentioned in the Bible, to lead the Israelites. The Israelites at this time were doing evil over and over again. And so God turned them over to the Canaanites, their enemy. The Israelites would cry out for mercy, and so God raised up these people called judges. Now, judges were different from the judges. Judges at that time were different from the judges we have today. They were rulers, military strategists, and leaders who spoke on behalf of God so Israel could turn from their immoral ways. Deborah was so popular and highly respected during her time that the location where everyone came to her to have their disputes decided was called the Palm of Deborah. I know, nice, yeah. All right, let's keep going. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh, and Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Then Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harosheth Hagoim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. 
Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. What an incredible battle scene. We see here, from the beginning of the passage when we, that we read, we see here that the Israelites were under the oppression, oppressive rule of Jabin, the king of the Canaanites. And God sent, go back to that, God sent Barak, a military camp commander, for the Israelites to defeat Sisera, commander of the 900 chariots fitted with iron. It's these 900 chariots that have put Israel in oppressive rule for 20 years. They were truly frightening. But even so, we see here that God promises victory to Barak when he leads this army into battle. But what we learn is that that promise was not enough. A couple of things came to mind as I read this. Barak had some mad respect for Deborah. He knew Deborah and her reputation and said, I want you to come with me or I won't go. For a man to tell a woman in the ancient world that he will only go into the battlefield if she went with him was unheard of. It would have been perceived as weak and dishonorable. And so this was an extraordinary request. It was radical because women in the ancient world were seen as second class. They were seen as property, as bodies to be used, as not worthy of receiving any sort of education. They were to remain in the home, not outside their homes, let alone the battlefield. Given this context, when Deborah responds to Barak's statement by saying, certainly, I will go with you, this is a surprising response. She could have easily said, no, that's not my role. That's your role. You're a man. Women don't go into the battlefield. What I admire about Deborah was her ability to create her own path even in the midst of all the restrictions in the ancient world. We know she was married because her introduction states that she was the wife of Lapidoth. But even with the gender roles and expectations placed on married women in that day, she still followed her call from the Lord. And when she gave Barak the exhortation, Go, this is your day. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? I wonder if she had told herself that very same word the day she was called to ministry and appointed the judge as leader of Israel. I believe she was able to say these words to Barak in a high-stakes, high-emotion situation with such conviction and belief 
because she experienced it herself. Good leaders create their own path as they follow their call. Before I applied for this role as pastor, I uh, wrestled with my call to ministry for years. The job description was actually out for several months before I officially applied because I was wrestling. And as I began my discernment, I asked myself, do I know of any pastors with four kids who are serving in the church? Yeah, male pastors. (laughs) Do I know of any female pastors with four kids who are serving in the church? No, I don't. Do I know of any husband and wife pastors who are serving together in this same church with four kids? No, I, no, I, do, uh, I do know of a husband and wife pastor team, co-senior pastor team, um, who are serving together in a church, but they only have three kids. My head was spinning as I wrestled with questions like these, and I was getting nowhere in my discernment. Finally, I gained some clarity, and I asked God, Lord, what is it that you want me to hear? And this story of Deborah came to mind. I sensed the Lord saying, go, This is your day. I have gone ahead of you, and I am with you wherever you are, always. And that, my friends, brought me tremendous consolation. He will not lead you to a place where he has not already gone. It's like a child who takes their first steps, one parent's ahead of them, maybe another parent's videotaping and a sibling's cheering them on, and that child can have that courage to take those first steps because they know their mommy and daddy are ahead of them and right there to catch them if anything were to go wrong. This is the truth that God wants all of us to know. Not all of our questions will be answered in the way that we hope and not all of our concerns will be addressed but hold on to the truth that the Lord has gone ahead of us and that he is with us always, wherever we are. Number number three, good leaders ask for help. Let's revisit Barak's statement. In this desperate and intense and frightening life or death situation, he said, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. If we were to look at this statement through a contemporary lens, I think Barack was actually quite courageous. He had questions and doubts about this battle, and rightfully so, 900 chariots fitted with iron, but bravely and vulnerably asked for help. Now, maybe in our context today, it would sound more like, will you come with me? Will you come with me because I'm afraid? I don't know if I can really do this. I know I cannot do this alone. Will you come with me? I grew up in a family where independence was valued and affirmed, but I was told that I can make it on my own and that I shouldn't rely on anyone. When it was my birthday, my friends at school would give me gifts. 
I would say, no, I can't accept them. Please just take them back. And they would say, but I bought this just for you. I was taught that I can't receive anyone from anything from anyone because that would make me feel indebted to the person, like I owe them something. And by the way, I don't really have this issue anymore, so if you want to shower me, because I very cheerfully accept. So I lived with this unholy vow for a long time that I'm better off alone and I don't need anyone. When John and I have conflict, my auto response is, I don't need you to do anything for me. I can do it myself. And sadly, that sounds a lot like my three-year-olds when they had meltdowns. <laughs> Sometimes courageous steps can only be taken when we invite someone into our journey and say, will you help me? Will you come with me? I need you. We feel vulnerable, exposed, at risk for rejection, and maybe some embarrassment. But great leadership is surrounded with a team of people who are safe, people you can trust to share vulnerably about the areas where you might need help without judgment or condemnation. Interestingly, there was a study from a group of researchers that found that male leaders were seen as incompetent when they asked for help, but that same bias doesn't apply to women. And this is because there's a myth. The myth is that leaders shouldn't need help because they should always have it all together and always be strong and always be confident about every decision they make. Many men grew up with this message, thinking that this is what strong leadership looks like and this is what it means to be a man. Women, we have a whole lot of other pressures, but we don't have that same kind of pressure to step into leadership. So when women ask for help and they're in a leadership role, it's consistent with how people see women and what they think is acceptable for women. So, one might conclude that Barack was ahead of his time by asking for help, just as Deborah was ahead of her time by overcoming stereotypical gender roles in their cultural context. As a result of their partnership and their combined leadership, Israel lived in peace for 40 years after 20 years of oppression. Number four, good leaders cultivate a curiosity for the world and themselves. Children are born curious. We see that curiosity even in a helpless baby as they turn towards sounds, um, as their eyes widen and light up, as they notice the things around them, especially fans. All my children love ceiling fans more than their mobiles. It's really funny. Just, okay, anyway, so. But somewhere along the way, as kids grow up and become adults, many of them lose that curiosity. There are numerous reasons for this that I won't go into today, but it shows up when we stop asking questions. 
when they've decided that they already know everything there is to know about blank, and the exploration of the world begins to decline. In Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead, she writes that researchers are finding evidence that curiosity is correlated with creativity, intelligence, improved learning and memory, and problem solving. In a study published in 2014 in the Neuron Journal, it says that the brain's chemistry changes when we become curious, helping us better learn and retain information. Now, active learning and collecting knowledge and information is one thing, but our curiosity is in jeopardy when things get uncomfortable because when we get curious, we don't know what outcome there might be. I'm talking about the hot topics, the hard issues, the difficult and crucial conversations, including race, gender, and sexual ethics. These are just a few of the issues that require a curiosity from a leader to thoughtfully arrive at personal convictions. Earlier this year, an article was written about intellectual humility. How many of you guys have heard of this, this phrase or this term? Awesome. Intellectual humility is described as being actively curious about your blind spots. The author of this article, Brian Resnick, writes about the three main challenges on the path to humility. Number one, in order for us to acquire more intellectual humility, we all, even the smartest among us, need to better appreciate our cognitive blind spots. Our minds are more imperfect and imprecise than we'd often like to admit. Our ignorance can be invisible. Number two, even when we overcome that immense challenge and figure out our errors, we need to remember we won't necessarily be punished for saying, I was wrong. And we need to be braver about saying it. We need a culture that celebrates those words. And number three, we'll never achieve perfect intellectual humility. So we need to choose our convictions thoughtfully. When I started vocational ministry as a youth director in 2001, and purity culture was all the rage, the book I Kissed Dating Goodbye, whoop, there we go. The book I Kissed Dating Goodbye was released. How many of you guys read this book? Okay, that's good. Not too many of you. <laughs> the book I Kissed Dating Goodbye was released, and I made Every person I discipled read this book. I coordinated True Love Waits rallies so that hundreds of youth in our ministry would make public pledges to never give their purity away. I truly thought sexual purity ought to be the priority when pursuing holiness. However, I did not give much thought or consideration for the people in the room who did not meet the standard that I held. In essence, I did not give much room for the redemptive grace of God to 
fully be experienced in the people that I shepherded. I was wrong. Two decades later, the author Joshua Harris released a statement apologizing for writing this book and the damage it caused his readers. As a result of learning about the harm from the hundreds or maybe thousands of readers, um, he decided to discontinue the publication of the book. I am grateful for his intellectual humility and his apology because I share in his regret. And I hope other authors will follow his example that maybe they were wrong about some of the things they wrote and will own up to the damage they've caused. One of our church's main priorities is to become a church of diverse people. Our upcoming retreat that Caleb announced today will center around our own stories of culture, race, and ethnicity. There's going to be discomfort. There could be a lot of emotions depending on how vulnerable we want to be with each other. For all those who attend the retreat, we have a major responsibility. It's to be curious. And it's to stay curious about someone's story by holding a safe space for them to share, even when the critical, defensive, judgmental voices creep into our minds as we listen. If you come, you'll get, to, you'll get a chance to cultivate your curiosity. When we can get curious about the world that God has created, we will know how to better live in it the way he designed for us to live in this world. And lastly, good leaders take the time to grieve. I had the joy of growing up with a grandmother who was like a second mother to me. I used to have like massive sleep anxiety growing up when I was younger, so she would sleep on the floor next to me um, because she had a bad back. And every night, I would hear her pray for a long time in Taiwanese, which I didn't understand. Um, but she'd pray on her knees. And I remember at the very end of her prayer, I'd ask her, Ama, what did you pray about? And she would tell me, I prayed for you, your mom. And the list would go on and on. Hearing her prayers was one of the first faith formations of my life. When my grandmother died in 2012, my world was torn apart and I didn't even know it. <clears throat> After her funeral, I immersed myself with work because I didn't know how to grieve and to handle the pain. I even took this whole seminary class at Fuller on grief, loss, death, and dying, and I still didn't know how to handle grief. I was depressed, moody, and I was in ministry. It was a really terrible, awful combination. But because I didn't take the time to grieve, 
I didn't know how to offer comfort and support to others without it sounding artificial and empty. Losing a loved one is just one of many ways that we might experience grief. It could be the loss of a job, a loss of a dream, a loss of community, a loss of friendship or a relationship. None of us are immune to hardships in life. But what I'm finding more now as I grow as a leader is when I practice grieving, it's getting a whole lot harder for me to avoid the pain, even when I really, really want to. But it's getting a lot easier for me to comfort others because it's something that I'm receiving from God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. God doesn't promise a life without pain or disappointment, but he promises that we won't walk through the darkness alone. And when we can get present with our own pain and the pain of others, we can lead people to receive the comfort and hope that God offers all of us. Can I pray for us as we close? God, we give you thanks that you are a God who has a great vision, a great vision for all of us. You've invited us to be a part of this vision, um, to steward our talents and gifts that you've uniquely gifted us um, to, to to live in the way that you want us to live in this world. And for those of us who are wrestling with just our identity and our calling, I just pray, Lord, that you would give each person here the freedom to be able to discern where you are calling them, how you are calling them, and what their focus should be. Thank you, Lord, that you are the father of compassion and that you offer us hope, that you offer us comfort. Um, Thank you, Lord, for each person here and for calling us all to serve you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this.